Today on Bobby and Jens, we sit down with Michael Bling Matthews from Team Bike Exchange Jayco. The season is long, the races are hard, and this chat with Michael was amazing. Okay, everyone, welcome Michael Matthews to Bobby and Jens. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Jens. How are you, good boys? You know, not bad. Not bad. I'm in this uh, beautiful state called Hawaii, so I'm 12 hours behind you, and um, Jens is in an airport in Newark, New Jersey right now on his way to Wisconsin. So podcast life, man, I mean, it's you got to deal with uh, what you got, and here we are. Here we are. But man, thanks for, thanks for joining us. We know it's been a long season. Um, I need to start because you started racing the year that I retired and very quickly your name got around and your nickname bling, where did that come from? And where did that start? Um, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was also a long time ago, but, um, nah, I, I, I came from a different sport. I came from motocross. So I was a, lot, a little bit different crowd to, to the cycling crowd, um, the cycling crowd was more like the private school kids where I was, yeah, more with the public school kids. Um, yeah, just riding my motorbike most days, riding my BMX as much as I could. Um, and actually came from the, yeah, the clothes and stuff I was wearing when I first, uh, came to, came to cycling I went to a track cycling event with, uh, sort of my pants hanging down, Around my around lower, my lower buttocks and uh, with a nice nice uh, flashy belt and yeah crazy hairdos and yeah the boxer shorts sort of hanging out the top of the of the pants and yeah it was a crazy crazy time in my life and actually one of uh, my eventual friends in cycling his father actually gave me the nickname Bling um, and it sort of just stuck from there. So you actually do wear any bling like diamond earpieces or nose piercers or anywhere else, or it's just the old story about that name that sticks with you? Um, I think, yeah, I still have strange uh, style, I guess, my own style, uh, which is quite a few tattoos, um, my ear piercings. Um, I used to have my eyebrow, but I took it out. And yeah, just my fashion sense, I guess. Um, Lots of uh, bracelets and necklaces and watches. But um, yeah, I just like to look nice, which I think uh, is probably more my style now, just to look nice rather than too over the top like I used to. Well, you know, what would then be the part of the kit or the bike that you would, pun intended, bling out? What, 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 what do you concentrate on? Would it be, you know, your shoes, your wheels, your helmet? What what part of kit would would get the bling the bling treatment? Oh, back then probably would have been most of my stuff actually from the from the helmet to the to the shoes. But actually, probably my shoes my shoes sort of fetish having cool ones was sort of after the World Championships in 2010, where uh, Garnet at the time was my shoe sponsor. They made me a pair of uh, World Champion shoes and then from there on um yeah cycling shoes really became a hit that you could actually do a cool design on them so having like kangaroos and stuff on my shoes and i think cadell evans was also sponsored by the same uh, shoe sponsor at the time so i saw his shoes that were um painted up really nice so i got some good ideas there from him also so um now we've talked about racing shoes at what year at what age you actually did own your first pair of proper racing shoes to actually have, you know, click pedals at what age or what time? I think basically as soon as I started, I mean, I think, uh, with, with my motocross and downhill and BMX background, my balance was always pretty good. Um, so it didn't really take me too long. I actually started probably more on the track, um, cycling than actually on the road. So I really got thrown into the deep end with, uh, with getting used to the clip shoes, but, um, No, it was, it was actually not so bad. I mean, just a couple of times of traffic lights, I guess, like everyone else, when you forget to sort of unclip and there's a lot of stuff going on around you and you sort of have a little crash there. But I mean, other than that, it was, uh, it was pretty straightforward. And when you're growing up with, uh, the, the motocross, who was your like idol at that time? Um, for sure. Chad Breed, 
was uh, someone I really looked up to. Um, Australian, really being over in America, doing doing big things over there, um, and just yeah, I think representing all of us Australians that were sort of stuck in Australia on the Australian scene before um, getting the opportunities to go over to America and really race the big scene. So I think yeah, I have to say HIV. And I got to ask Yenzi a question, Yenzi. I need to know your story about your motocross uh, down with the boys in Toulouse. Uh, well, there were a few people living there with me, and we all had a motocross bike, a two-stroke 250 CCM, and I cannot mention any names because um, <laughs> we actually, um, I was the only one with a license, and mm. our number plates, we just did ourselves with an adding a text mark with our number plates ourselves. So I guess <laughs> I guess it was plain stupid. And we once we had to cover up one of us. He had a fall, of course. And um, when a team asked, "Hey, what happened to him and him?" But ah, uh, you know, he slipped down the stairs in his house. He was in his flip flops, running to actually catch, catch the phone. And he slipped down the stairs. That's why he got this fallen ankle right now. So we had to make up a story for him. Uh, it was great. It was great. Um, but I was also the slowest and most careful driver, I have to admit, amongst uh, the boys. Oh, man. I remember hearing these stories like, what are you guys doing? We should not allow pro bike racers to have a motorcycle ever. And um, nice of you not to mention any names, but... Um, I think you guys had green jerseys on, and it was a French team, and um, there was quite a few of you guys living down in Toulouse. But, um, Michael, you're, you're based in Monaco now, and that's where a lot of the pros, the top pros especially, live. You guys are obviously you know, competitors, but when you're training together, friendships are made. Tell us a little bit about those normal training rides in Monaco and, and maybe elaborate on, on the friendships that you've made there. Yeah, I think um, when I first moved to Monaco, my sort of first sort of real serious training partner was uh, was Richie Fort. Um, when I first did my first race uh, in in Europe, I think it was like a, a Paris Nice or something. Um, he heard that I was moving to Monaco. Oh, sorry, third third season professional when I moved to Monaco after being in Belgium and Holland. Um, he heard I was moving to Monaco, and um, he said, "Yeah." I'd like to meet up with you for some training rides. And um, yeah, since then, we almost train together every single day, uh, which helps because we, we like to train a lot similar, similar training rides. Um, obviously, he's a much better climber, but uh, we can push each other in, in different areas. And we just like to train hard sort of all day, um, which makes it fun. And I think now, probably more recently, training a lot with Tade Pogacar. He's... Um, yeah, the young the young superstar at the moment with uh, also the same sort of training style as I like to do where we're just attacking each other all day and just playing on our bikes. So just trying to enjoy enjoy cycling as much as we can um, while we have this opportunity in our life to, to, be, to be professional cyclists. It's, um, yeah, we're just trying to enjoy it. And I think the, the, the time goes past so fast when you ride with good people and you just sort of, you don't really consider it work. You just consider it like fun and enjoy every moment moment, and try and get the maximum out of it. You sound um, a little different than some other guests we had. There's a lot of guests we had. They have all the science. They weigh their food. They count the calories. And they do precisely the efforts they needed to do. So how much science is in your training and how much is just guts and feeling? Um, I think that's why I like training with those two people I mentioned before. Um, we obviously take it super serious, but we love to go off feel um, in our training. And obviously we have an outline of what we need to do in that day, but we try and put a sort of race simulation into, into the training, um, which, yeah, your trainer can put, yeah, whatever numbers or whatever training uh, efforts on on that day but if you're not enjoying it you're not putting everything into it then it's going to be a short career so we sort of try and make it make it fun we sort of race each other instead of doing real specific efforts obviously if we need to do those specific efforts we do them but around those efforts we still keep playing and and just enjoy being on our bikes and 
stop for a nice coffee if we want to, and then uh, back at it attacking each other again. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a wild training ride. It's not for everyone, but the guys that uh, like that sort of style, they'll come with us. But um, yeah, normally it's a pretty small group, unfortunately. That that is not a bad training group right there. Let's let's get a little bit more specific into to you. Um, obviously you're talking about keeping it fun, which is obviously, I think, that that trick to the longevity. And, you know, we are starting to see young riders come into the sport ultra based in science and protocols and specificity. And, you know, only time will tell how long they actually, you know, want, want to stay in the sport. But um, you're multiple stage winners in, in all three Grand Tours. And you won the green jersey in 2017, but then had a little bit of a dry spell um, until this year, which we'll get into in a second. But first, tell us about how riders deal with this ebb and flow, these good seasons, these bad seasons, these, you know, second and third places instead of winning. Because especially in the tour, it seems like riders like yourself are expected to win stages and getting second and third is almost looked at as as a failure but you know you can't win all these races but you went through that little dry spell um tell us you know your mental fortitude you know your your mental mindset during during those challenging uh periods during the tour the last couple years yeah i mean i think it's basically exactly what you said um i did go through yeah it was a two two or three years which was really really difficult for me um but I think we've obviously gone over it um, last off season, uh, before, before this season has started, and um, and we sort of sat back and thought what we what we were doing wrong. And I think we actually overdid um, everything that we were doing. We thought after 2017 season, where well, we had a really good season, we said, okay, now we need to step up again and do more. And I think that's actually where we went wrong. We actually went too far um into too serious training too too serious eating habits just doing just overdoing everything and i think this year where we just said okay let's step back let's go back to what we used to where it was just it was just fun training was just fun it was enjoyable you wanted to go out and ride your bike it wasn't so specific about doing this exact numbers in training doing this exact amount of hours i mean we just went back to what new worked for us in the past, which was just basic training, just enjoying being on the bike and getting up every morning and having that, that drive, that motivation where you're just like, what am I going to do today? I'm just going to go and have fun on my bike. And I think that's what's missing in the, in a lot of people at the moment is just that enjoyment. And everyone's just trying to push for that extra five Watts in their effort or little things like this, where in a race, honestly, it doesn't matter. If you go into the race with a fresh mind and being happy, I think that's better than getting an extra five watts or being an extra 300 grams lighter than you were before. I mean, that's, I think, what works best for me this year compared to those three years that we just spoke about that I was just trying way too hard. And this year, I've just sort of gone back to enjoying. In these years, did you ever have moments where you were about to give yourself up, like frustrated and go, I don't want this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. Or you were always not, nah, there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Or you had these dark moments where you go, I just want to stop my career. Yeah, hundred percent. I think especially last year, last year was probably the most difficult one for me. Um, the two years before that was all the COVID periods and stuff. So, I mean, everyone was going through a lot of, yeah, ups and downs, obviously with the COVID where there's just so much other stuff going on. But for me last year, um, going back to Team Bike Exchange, where they took me back after being away for four years, um, I really just wanted to give my best of, of me to back to the team and show them why they brought me back to, to the team. And I just tried so hard in every single area. I was just completely dead. Whenever a race I went to, because I just tried too hard. And I think all through last year, I was just thinking maybe I'm just – not good enough maybe i should just stop maybe this is my level and i can't i can't get more out of myself than this but then i just kept trying harder which only dug the hole deeper for me because i'm not a person that 
ever gives up. So the more you push me down, the more I try and get back up again. And to the point I, I should have just taken a rest and reset um, mentally and physically. But I thought I just kept trying to get more and more out of myself. Like you said, I just wouldn't give up um, until the end of the season. And I think that's why I was always between top five and top three well, and, and never actually winning. Cause I was just never the freshest guy there, unfortunately. And you said we, like when you're talking about changing some things or going back to this new kind of, you know, ad hoc, fun um, mentality, who were, who is your like internal support squad that, that made these obviously correct decisions to kind of let go of the reins a little bit? Um, me and my wife and my coach is, is our little uh, trio. We have, it's basically been us three since since I started professional cycling, basically, um, that's that's our little team that we always revert back to when uh, when everything is good or bad. And at the end of the season, we always have a we always have a meeting and say what worked, what didn't, what we're going to use for next year. And yeah, I think my wife is my my rock actually, where she's basically everything for me. Whether it's my my coach, my my manager, my DS, my, my everything so i think she's also the person that i trust the most on this planet that she'll give me the honest answer um every single time i ask her whether i want to know it or not she'll give it to me and i think at the moment it's probably difficult to swallow what she says but uh in the end i know it's for my best interest now that you just talked about your wife and you give her the highest praise and said she's so important to you does she have any cycling background or any like uh, coaching uh, background or is she just a good human being that's just good for you uh, she's just a very very smart person i think she's absorbed a lot of the of the cycling over over my years um and her family has had stuff to do with cycling in in her young age um also her dad had a cycling team so she grew up with cycling um but she's never actually had any study in the in any area of it, but she's just a very fast learner. And I think she sees what I do day in, day out. Um, she reads a lot about what other people do. She reads studies of the past of, of cycling. She reads about everything. And basically I just ride my bike and she helps me with everything. Basically. That's amazing. Um, we, we've talked about this before. Um, it, getting a wife of a professional cyclist on our podcast to get the other side of the coin because you know i've been with my wife for for 30 years she doesn't understand a thing about cycling but she understands everything about me and man why are women right almost all the time uh like you said you, you fight it you fight it you're like no this is the way to do it and they just look at life through a, a different lens so Yenzi, let's put that on our um, our notepad of, of future guests because I'd really like to get the other side uh, of the coin here because we are not easy to live with or we were not easy to live with. And these women, these strong women that stick with us through thick and thin when we're you know, at training camps, away at races, sleeping at 9.30 when they want to go out, um, leaving a pretty, you know, infantile lifestyle when you think about it right these women are amazing so um kudos to your wife um can i ask the name of your coach uh my coach is brian stevens uh, um you mean uh brino the brother of steve-o yeah holy smoke say hi to him he was my ds in 97 like in the no last way. millennium yes he was Working with Heiko Salzwedel at the um, um, Giant AIS, and then we joined Force. We had a team um, back then. Uh, Michael Matthews, uh, sorry, no, um, Matthew White was my teammate in '97. So yeah, I know, uh, I know. Say hi to him. Fantastic, I, awesome. I will. I actually saw a photo of that uh, the other day with uh, the yeah. whole Giant team. Yeah, I think Brian Good times. was in the photo. Was that um, when you had your mullet, Yenzi? Yes, I had my picture book mullet. I looked awesome. And my wife fell in love with me with the mullet. Maybe because or still with the mullet. Yep, that's true love, baby. <laughs> She loved my mullet. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, 
you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from values.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including Yoga Journal, Backpacker, Ski, Outside Magazine, and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now, back to our chat with Michael. Okay, so now let's fast forward to Tour de France this year, 2022, stage 14. Um, for me, on paper, it was not the stage that I would expect Michael Matthews to win. But you figured out a way to to win. For me, it was one of the best and most unpredictable stages in the Tour de France this year. And yes, we had quite a few of them. Talk us through your tactics when you got into that breakaway with all those amazing climbers on stage 14 with a very, very, very steep, hard uphill finish to Mond. Yeah, well, it was one of the stages that I did target. But um, yeah, like you said, it can go it can go any sort of way. Um, a stage like that, if you miss the break or if a team wants to control or there's just so many scenarios that can happen on a stage like that. So I mean, once actually to get in the breakaway was already... A very hard uh, mission. Um, I don't know if uh, it was actually televised or not, but uh, Tade was trying to go in, Walt was trying to go in. Um, a lot of key riders were trying to go into that breakaway, I think, just to, to cause some some yeah disturbance in the GC. I'm not really sure, just to have a bit of fun, maybe with Tade. He's always up for that. So, um, yeah, just to make that breakaway, it was already, I think, 30, 40K, just slightly uphill, um, rollers just to get in and I actually almost missed it um, a break was gone and I was trying to jump in everything and was getting a little bit too excited and I just said to the other GC teams like what break do you want to actually go I mean we're, we're all fighting here to get in the breakaway but what do you guys actually want you know and they said we just want the breakaway to go and I said well why are you trying to get in it so much then like what's <laughs> what's happening here and actually just after that was the one that um, actually went and it was about sort of hundred meters up the road. And I had to actually gap across uh, with two other guys um, to, to make sure I made the breakaway. So first of all, that was already one, one box ticked, just getting, getting into there. Um, but then, yeah, I arrived there and it was, uh, I think 24, 24 riders. And I think three or four teams had, had three riders. A lot of teams have multiple riders, and I was uh, I was in there by myself. So I knew from that moment um, it was going to be very difficult, but we needed to to roll the dice. And I had Matt Heyman as my DS um, behind me in the car, telling me from a long way out that uh, you're going to have to do a long one here, mate. Otherwise, if you wait for the final climb, you might miss the opportunity completely. So found the moment. Um, and uh, and took it. Come on, there, there. The moment, the moment was a little bit more than that. Um, I saw a evolution of a rider, and when Betiol kind of gapped you there, this was your last five seasons. I mean, it was right there. This was a very, very you know tough mental battle more than just as much as a physical battle. And when I saw that you were hanging on there after his acceleration, um, I don't know, for me, I was inspired because I, I, as a fan of cycling, I'm thinking, what does this guy feel right now? And I mean, you could have pulled the pin. I mean, a better climber just attacked you on an uphill finish. Um, you're a sprinter. Like you could have had you know, all the excuses in the world is, hey, I gave it a good shot. I was in there. But there's got to be something more that you can, another little nugget that 
that made you dig that little bit deeper and then actually come over the top of him? Because that was a mental battle, in my opinion, at least from my place on the couch. And it was, I, I cheered probably harder, harder that stage than any other stage because I, I felt like, holy cow, this is a tipping point for Michael Matthews here. Like this is, this is going to make him so much better mentally. Um, we all know you have it physically, but this sport is so mentally challenging and man, you won that battle and it could have been with yourself, but any, any other little nugget of what was going through your mind instead of pulling the pin there? Yeah. First of all, thank you. Um, I do appreciate that. Those kind words. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that Tour de France was, was, was quite a roller coaster um, up until that point. Um, I was second two times to two two really good riders, um, Tade and, and Welt, in the two stages that I had targeted before this stage. And um, I think, but, yeah, after those two stages, I would call with my wife and my daughter, and my daughter was crying and she wouldn't she wouldn't talk to me she was so emotional and i was thinking like why what's what's the problem i mean i was second it's not not so bad is it and she's like yeah but you didn't win and uh, for me when she, when i heard her like the sadness in her voice and her not wanting to talk on the phone because she was crying i had i had her face and i had her her voice in my head uh when when betty was gapping me and I said, I'm not, I'm not being second again today. And I, I found, I found that extra bit um, that I needed. And yeah, I think it was, it was enough. But um, yeah, I think that moment I dug deeper than I have ever had to in my life. And I think having that little bit of extra um, from my daughter um, in that moment was what made the difference and like you said i could have i could have just said oh betio was a better climber on the day i'm a sprinter i mean how am i going to stay with him um but i wasn't going to be second again so how long after the finish did you actually call the family right away was the first thing you did call the wife and the kids um well the phone the, my phone actually left with the bus so it was actually and then i had the podium i had doping control i had the press conference i had all the stuff to do um so and then it was still probably the one of the longest uh transfers after the stage of the whole tour de france still in my kit hadn't showered uh the first thing i did was just run i was just telling my um swanny to drive as, as fast as he could to the hotel because the only thing i wanted to do was uh was call home but um i couldn't and when i was just yeah, telling it to speed. Actually, we had a we had a police escort for most of the drive, which was great. We cut out a fair bit of the normal time, but yeah, that was the longest sort of hour and a half of my, of, of, my, of my life, just waiting for for that moment just to call them and celebrate with them. And once I finally did, they all had a glass of champagne in their hand, and yeah, being really happy. So that was really the cherry on top of the cake. Wow. That is awesome. How old is your daughter? Uh, she's almost five. Yeah, little prophets, man. Little kids are, <laughs> they grow up quick, though. Just, uh, my daughter just turned 16 and the other one 20. I, last time I remember, she was in my arms, like in my last Perinice, uh, like three years old. It's, it's crazy, but that, that's, that's, that's mm -hmm. awesome. So, successful Tour de France, you finally get that money, monkey off your back. Um, Kind of comes to a point like, what do I do the rest of the year? Um, your team, Bike Exchange, Jayco, is in the clear, but let's face it, uh, that UCI point relegation issue probably had a lot to do with your end of the season race schedule. Um, how, I mean, that was a nightmare and it's only recently been cleared up and who knows, uh, you know, what's, what's really going to happen. But how did that impact your race schedule and your morale um, post Tour de France? Yeah, well, I think we, yeah, this year we've actually been really good. Um, last year we had a, 
bad year. So we put ourselves in a, in a position where we really needed to chase points this year. Um, I think going back to the classics, I missed basically all the Ardennes uh, through sickness, which was a big lack of points that we were missing. Um, so we had a big, heavy back end of the season ready to, to score as many points as we could. And yeah, after the tour, um, I've had basically just a lot of one-day races, um, which we're going to try and score as many points as we could. And I think it was uh, Saint Sebastian, which was one week after the Tour de France, which, yeah, I didn't perform very well. It was, uh, yeah, too close to the tour. I needed a bit more of a rest. But, um, yeah, then went back to altitude to prepare for uh, Plouet. Um, then off to Baltimore for the Baltimore Cycling Classic and then to Canada and then to the World Championship. So, I mean, not, not too many race days, but all really big, big races and uh, with very strong fields, um, which obviously makes it hard to, to score points. And I think only having a few opportunities to score the points was also, yeah, quite quite scary and I knew if I didn't perform in those races I was the leader of our team in those races we were normally going there with with one leader and if I wasn't there where I needed to be on the day um, to to get those points for the team and deliver the result that was expected we were going to struggle um, to stay in the world tour but uh, yeah I think after the tour going back to altitude it was it was pretty mentally difficult um, it was my third three-week altitude camp of the year. And then um, obviously preparing for, for the World Championships in Australia, which was also my biggest goal of the season. And yeah, there's just so much stuff going through your head. Like you obviously want to win these races, but at the same time, you've also got to think, if I'm not good enough to win, I need to do as much as I can, whether it's top 10, whether it's top 15, to, to continue all the way to the line. Um, to get as many points as, as we can. And also, the World Championships was great points too with the Triple T and the, and the, road, and the road race. So, well, lots of points up for grabs. So, did you feel the team tactics changing because the team needed desperately points? And also, did you feel other teams changed their tactics to go against your team so you wouldn't be able to, scare, to score points? Or did you actually watch other teams that they couldn't make points Because it was a quite fierce battle for these uh, places, right? Yeah, well, for, for the races that I was I was leader, um, it was basically just for me. Um, we were really just going for the win, um, which, yeah, puts a lot, bit more pressure on me too to, uh, to deliver the result. But I think the, the team believed in me that I could get the result that was expected. And I think that's... It's uh, a definitely a pleasure that um, they they trusted me to to get the result, but it's also a massive stress that if I don't if I'm not good on the day and I can't deliver the result, um, it's always nice to have a plan B uh, ready to to do a result. But um, yeah, for my races at the end of the season, except for Baltimore, we had me and Dylan Greenwagen for the for the sprint. So we had two guys that were going to get normally big points if it came down to a bunch sprint, uh, which it didn't in the end. I'm not sure how many people watched it, but yeah, the breakaway stayed away. So we were a little bit unlucky there, but obviously, yeah, we are watching other teams, um, especially Lotto, Sadal and Israel. They were, they were the two teams that we were watching the most, um, especially when I was away doing all the races um, abroad. Um, Lotto, Sadal and Israel would do it not really doing those sorts of races, but putting a lot of riders in the races in Belgium, in Holland, in France, where you're getting big points in these, uh, let's say, smaller one-day races. Um, and they were doing really well there. So it was quite a big, uh, a big stress. Um, but I was able to perform in my races where I got lots of points. So now I'm able to, to end my season after the World Championships, which, uh, which was a nice little present. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean, you, you deserve a break. Um, I could not imagine doing a three week training camp at altitude after the tour de France. I mean, that, that's, that's insane. Number one. Um, and that you were able to use the races, the, the Maryland cycling classic in the U S uh, the races up in, in Canada, and then top it off with 
a great medal in your in your home country is just amazing. And you see a bunch of graphics out there because this was obviously a hot topic. Um, not only was your team, uh, Team Bico, uh, Bike Exchange, I'm sorry, Team Bike Exchange, Jayco, very active in the final couple weeks, um, scoring the most points of those teams that were kind of in that in that little relegation period. But then the fact that you um, took a huge part made a huge difference in in that must have been amazing so congratulations man i know um when you're thinking out there you're thinking of just winning the bike race for yourself but you got to think of those you know 50 60 80 people on the team that um life could change so have a a good off season there's no doubt but let's talk a little bit about the world championships um obviously remco Evenepoel came out of the um the Vuelta just on a on a different level, you know. Maybe he struggled a little bit in the time trial, but showed his his class. Um, what were you guys thinking when when he was able to when when he got away there? Was was there any question that he was coming back, or was it just that obvious? Yeah, well, it's um, yeah, it was it was a very strange race. Let's say um, we had the Mount Kira after. 30 kilometers of racing, uh, which is almost a, was it? almost a 10 K climb. Um, the breakaway went prior to that after sort of 10 to 15 K of racing. And then we hit Mount Kira, which was, I think maybe seven or 8% for t- 10 kilometers, which is quite, it's quite a hard climb. Um, but yeah, it's only 30 kilometers into a race. That's 270 something K long. So everyone was thinking we'll just cruise up there and uh yeah we'll go to the circuits and start racing there and um actually a big break went with 50 uh, 50 or so riders in it um we had three from australia so we were pretty happy um and actually walt and tade were in that breakaway and me and even and i guess other favorites were back in the peloton so we were thinking well, I was, me and I, other Aussie teammates were thinking, what's what's happening here? I mean, now Walt's going in the early break and uh, Avonapool sitting on. I, okay, this is strange. Anyway, it all comes back together, and obviously, early moves start firing on the on the circuit. Um, and yeah, there's still the big break. Oh, I think maybe half the break got caught. There was still a handful of guys off the front, and um, there was another move. This sort of what was it? Six laps to go, I think, around that around that sort of range, and uh, we put Jai Hindley in in that breakaway with with Evenepoel, and uh, Jai obviously, Giro d'Italia winner, very very promising climber for the for the future, very strong rider. We we threw him up there with uh, with Evenepoel to keep him under control, and um, yeah, Evenepoel from I think was. Was two or three laps to go. We heard he was he was solo, but we were thinking, okay, there's still quite a big bunch that will chase him down. But um, yeah, they never seemed to seem to catch him. And from our point of view, back in the peloton, we were only getting sort of updates um, of what was happening from the side of the road because yeah, obviously we don't have radios at the World Championships. So any updates we get is sort of every what was it? Almost every 10k. So you really got to sort of make your own decision in that sort of 10K of what you do. And I wasn't, I wasn't too well informed of what was happening in front with, uh, with Jai or with, with, with even a pool. So by the time we got around to there, I think it was only half a lap to go that I knew that, um, that, that bunch wasn't really going to come back together with even a pool and he was going to win solo. And um, then going into the final how, how did you then actually uh, negotiate your sprint? The group was not the entire peloton anymore. How, how did you go into the sprint? Did you choose a certain wheel to follow or was it just everybody for himself? Yeah, well, it was madness, actually. I mean, we just kept catching groups uh, that were from the from that pre-final breakaway. Um, I think we sort of thought that our race was over in the peloton, that we were not racing for anything anymore. And then everyone started racing again. And uh, we're catching group after group. And it was only in the last sort of 500 meters that we caught the final group that was up the road. I think it was a group of sort of five, six guys that we caught on the final corner. And then uh, prior to that, 
um, was France that actually did the did the really strong lead out for for Laporte from maybe I think seven eight hundred meters out. They started uh, with a full train um, into the final kilometer. And we actually only caught Tratnik. I think was twenty five meters to go or something. So yeah, I think France really did a, a great job to to have as, as many guys there in the final as they did and to drop off the port in a, in a great, great position. And I think I was actually two wheels behind port. I was on the port. I was on the uh, Van Aert's wheel. So I thought that was a pretty good wheel to, to line up on. And um, I was able to come around him, which I was pretty happy with to, to run in. But yeah. Now, now I understand a little bit more because I, I read a quote from you um, that, that getting third was, was like winning. And now I understand all the pressure that you had on you, um, all the ramifications. If, if you wouldn't have been on that good wheel, if you wouldn't have gotten the points, where would your team be now? So, um, congratulations on, on, on your amazing, uh, end of the season performance and especially, um, your medal there, your two medals there at the, at the world championships. But I want to stop right now because Richie Port. Um, has done his last race. He stopped in the Tour of Britain. Um, that race was truncated due to the Queen's passing, so he didn't really have his his send-off. So Richie is obviously a good friend of yours. He's a good friend of us, so I just wanted to take a second and wish Richie Port all the best on the other side of the barriers. Hopefully, you know, he'll we'll, we'll see him again, you know, somewhere when we're down in Tasmania and... Um, but anyway, Richie, love you, man. You had a great career. It was an honor to know you, honor to coach you, an honor to watch you. So uh, all the best in retirement. Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, you see, uh, Richie was my very first teammate as a Neo Pro back in the CSC days. So I know him for a long, long time as well. And yes, it is kind of like sad. You know, the king of Ilunga Hill is actually retiring. Um, he used to own that mountain. So now that you talk, so and we're all gonna miss him because he's a great guy and a great champion. Yeah, you know how we feel about Richie Port. Um, how do you feel about Richie Port and and his impending and his retirement? Yeah, well, I I still find it hard to believe. To be honest, um, we've been through so much uh, this last sort of ten years. Together since I since I moved to Monaco, um, he basically took me under his wing, and we did a lot of yeah a lot of training together, and we spent a lot of time off off the bike together. Um, we're the same gym coach, uh, so we're in the gym a lot together um, in someone's basement. Um, Rock, our gym trainer, was the always uh, making it, making good time. So whether it was motor pacing, whether it was gym, whether it was massage. Um, we we did a lot all together and yeah this last few years has been i think difficult for for richie with the COVID everything he wasn't really too happy to ride in the home trainer at home <laughs> we did uh, we did a lot of walks together during the lockdown um we were walking like sort of 10 to 20k a day in the morning until we got arrested um for for walking during the during the lockdown we said we were take we were going to get some stuff from the supermarket but the police didn't believe us so we got a nice little fine for that but i mean we just got a lot of stories that i can probably talk about for for hours um but yeah just the the stuff we've been through the last sort of 10 years i if i do eventually decide to write a book um, after my career, definitely a few of those stories will be in there. But um, yeah, just the the funny stuff that has happened to us that you just you couldn't even imagine the stuff, the, the weird stuff that happens to us when we're out training or just in general in our life. It's it's really funny, and I think that's what's uh, sort of kept us to be to be good riders and good friends that they're just just having fun all the time and just enjoying enjoying the time together and uh yeah i still find it hard to believe he's actually retiring i still keep pushing to continue but uh i think he's actually leaving us that, now that you talked about um him taking you under under his wing when you came there 
Do you have any young Australian or any young rider you want to take under your wing now that you are the more experienced rider? Yeah, um, I've I've definitely thought about it. Um, I had uh, Rob Stannard. He was he was in our team last year. Um, we we did a, a little bit of training together, but wasn't really the same sort of click that me and Richie had. I mean, I think the young guys coming into cycling now are, are really really professional. Let's say um, they they know what they need to do they're really up to date with everything where i was just a young kid coming from australia which didn't really have much experience in the sport and was just yeah very fresh and i think me and richie just bonded really well it wasn't like he was i was using him or he was using me it was it was more of a friendship um than anything else and i really found that with um like a deep, deep sort of friendship with, with anyone yet. But I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely here to help any, any young Aussies that, uh, that need the help. But like I said before, they're, they're also professional now. They, they, they don't need help. They're, they're probably more professional than, than I am anyway. So I mean, yeah, they're, they're, they're just very smart kids these days. I think, as you can see with even a pool and stuff, like they're just very well calculated. They know what they need to do and, I think they just get on with the job. So, and yeah, like I said before, if there's anyone that does need it, for sure, I'm willing to help always. But yeah, I haven't really found that exact click that me and Richie had for sure. Yeah, maybe maybe in a couple of years you'll have a podcast like uh, Yenzi and I. You know, it goes a goes a long way. Okay, we've talked mm-hmm. enough about bike racing. It's been a long season. What are your kind of decompression plans for a couple of weeks just to mentally reset physically reset and just enjoy do you have any travel plans or anything anything special these next next couple weeks before all of a sudden you're back at training camp and back into the grind um actually just no plans really i mean i've been away so much this year um also we rent an apartment next door just in case my my daughter is sick um she's going to school now so i was too scared to to be home uh, very much that she would get me sick or I'll get her sick. So actually just being at home is, is my goal for the off season. Just being at home with my family as much as I can um, and enjoying, enjoying that time where I don't have to think about myself um, getting ready for training, resting, eating properly, going to sleep at the right time. I can really devote myself more, more to the family, which is, it does take a little bit of time to adapt to, I must be honest um to go from just thinking about yourself 95 percent of the time to devoting all your time to your family but i'm i'm really enjoying it which is the which is the main thing and um i think we are we are obviously planning to go on a holiday but exactly where we're not really sure yet um but yeah just dropping my daughter off at school on uh, on our city bikes and going for a coffee with my wife after after we dropped my daughter off from school and yeah, just hanging out and being at home. It's what I've missed the last couple of years, honestly, where we were just, yeah, so caught up and so serious in what we were doing. Now we have a bit of time to just sort of sit back and enjoy what we've uh, been able to achieve this year. So when it comes to your holiday, your off-season, what's your guilty pleasure when it comes to food? Do you have anything you're craving all year long and you go, okay, I can only have it? the first day in my uh, off season at then because it's just too much for me. You got anything like that? Well, yeah, I guess everything you can sort of eat in moderation. I mean, um, something that I, I really often crave is the Milanese with the bone on it. Um, the proper Italian one. Um, that's something I really crave a lot in the, in the season, which I'm not allowed to eat very often. That just and some like, yeah, like nice potato chips and some lemon on top of the Milanese normally goes down a treat. Um, I normally have that after some celebration or something, but um, I haven't actually been able to have one yet. So I think we need to get onto that. But yeah, if I had to say one thing, I would say the Milanese. What about you, Yenzi? Well, we have a traditional German um, food. It's called ice bite. It's basically a pig's knuckle with like a centimeter of fat around it. 
it comes with mashed peas and potatoes and sauerkraut. And normally it goes down with at least a liter of beer. So we're talking like when one bazillion calories in it. So I, I often had it the first day in my off season and I needed until Christmas to depoison my body from it. But it is delicious, my friend. It is delicious. But really terrible for you, of course. Oh my gosh. I, I would need like two to three liters of beer to even think of putting that in my mouth, Yenzi. That, that, uh, Michael, like what you said, like made my mouth water and it's like about brunch time here in Hawaii. So, um, I'm going to just delete what Jens just said because that did not go over well with me. <laughs> well, hey, Michael, we've taken up enough of your time. Um, yeah, it's late there. 12 hours uh, behind you guys here in, in Hawaii. So, man, just congratulations. Um, you you made some major inroads this year. You, you helped your team. Um, you have the right attitude. You're only 32 years old. And I tell you, when I turned 32, it was just something switched. And I, I love what you said about just relaxing, just enjoying um, I had the similar thing, and then all of a sudden, it was like the parking brake that I was riding around halfway engaged just went to the ground. So really looking forward to – I'm not going to ask about your plans for next season because we're not you, – you, you shouldn't be thinking about that. You should be thinking about where you're going to get that Milanese over in Italy. But, man, thank you so much. It's been such a great time catching up with you, and um, just wish you all the best to you, your wife, and your your daughter, your team in the future. Thanks very much, Bobby. Thanks, Jens. Uh, really appreciate it. Yeah. Also from my side, congrats on a great season, finishing off with that top result at the Worlds. And I always wanted to ask you, um, did you forgive me about that breakaway in California or you still hate me for that one? <laughs> because you had a hard day, didn't you? I thought we were going to move on from that, mate. But um, no, 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 no. I mean, yeah, no, it was great racing. Um, we, had, we, had, we had a lot of fun. And just just your stories from the from the past when we were sitting in the breakaway, uh, sitting in the peloton all day, bored as hell, waiting for the final to do a bit of a sprint. Um, it was really entertaining, and you definitely missed in the peloton for sure. But um, no, I'll, I'll let that one slide, mate. For all the good times we had, I'll let that one slide. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's all our time for this week. Huge thanks to Michael Matthews for being our guest. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star review and make sure to share us with your friends. The show was a Bella News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>